Good? Awesome. Hello, and welcome to Talking in Shul, a roundtable podcast. I'm your host, Tamar Fox, and I've got Zahava Stadler joining us from Toronto. Hi, Zahava. Hi, Tamar. And I've got Mimi Lewis joining us from Somerville, Massachusetts. Hi, Mimi. Hello. And I also have my dogs making a lot of noise in the background today. I'm sorry. Um, Hi, dogs. This month, we're talking about climate change, grief, and how the Jewish community is and can be responding to climate change. And for a second segment, we're talking about the newish Netflix show, My Unorthodox Life. All right, Mimi, you proposed this first topic. And so I would love for you to get us started. So as Tamar said, for our first segment, we're joined by Amelia Wolf. Amelia is a fourth year rabbinical student at Jewish Theological Seminary in Manhattan. And in addition to being a lover of Talmud and a longtime listener of Talking and Shul, Amelia also recently worked at Dayenu, a Jewish call to climate action. Amelia is going to be serving as the rabbinic intern at CSAIR in Riverdale and Temple Bethel in Oneonta for the next two years. Full disclosure, Amelia is also my cousin by marriage. So, Amelia, first of all, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for asking me to be here. And we really wanted to bring you on because, you know, every month we start a conversation around, you know, what what are the top issues for us this month? And for me, I just have been really preoccupied with what I'll call the climate catastrophe. You know, every morning hearing reports about wildfires in the West affecting the air quality where I am all the way in Boston or record high temperatures or thinking about people trying to subsistence farm in countries where temperatures just every year temperatures go up so dramatically. And it's really led me to a feeling of just I think uh, Tamar said it best, a real grief um, and and a feeling of of not knowing where to put that grief. But I also have our Jewish tradition, which has guidance for grief, has, you know, even we just marked Tisha B'Av, where we commemorate all forms of grief and historical moments in our past. So I just have all of these thoughts sort of swirling around. And we agreed that we would dive in without much of a roadmap. But I'm hoping that maybe you could talk a little bit for us, Amelia, about what you think the role for Judaism is in facing this existential threat, this grief, this big problem. Sure. Yes. Thank you. Um, I am glad you brought up Tisha B'Av is a funny sentence to say, but I am uh, because I feel like right now our best case scenario is that we're in our Shabbat Nachamu moment uh, where we just had the Sabbath of consolation after Tisha B'Av where uh, we are reassured that there is going to be hope, um, but it doesn't negate the destruction that's already happened. What's happened has happened. The effects we're feeling, we're going to continue to feel. Uh, there's no going back and turning the planet back to what we want it to look like. But if we change our behavior now um, and we listen to what people are telling us to do, wise people and godly people are telling us to do, uh, then there is still a future to look forward to, uh, even if we're never going to stop mourning what we've lost. And if Judaism has a framework for anything, it has a framework for that. Um, because we're, we happen to all be here rabbinic Jews uh, who have been living in the post-temple framework uh, for thousands of years. And that is a framework of, of loss and reconstruction. Just, that's the, the moment we're at. I like that frame. So what, what brought you, a rabbinic student who, as I said, is a lover of Talmud and text, what brought you to this work of community organizing and climate? Sure. Um, two things. Uh, two terrible things, which are COVID and frantic anxiety. Um, COVID made it so that the more traditional jobs that I might have otherwise been looking at were 
kind of no longer existing. Um, and honestly, I might have overlooked the opportunity to work with Dainu, uh, where I spent the last year interning as an organizing fellow. Um, because it's so upsetting and I didn't have the language to deal with it. And I didn't want to be going through, uh, my life with this on my mind more than already was at uh, that at a certain point, I realized that if I'm actually working on the issue and I'm trying to do something to change the way the world is going, I, I can deal with it much better than if I'm just closing my eyes and then instead I'm waking up in the middle of the night horrified. So that's the very personal answer as to why I, why I, I took the job, but why I think everybody should be, especially the Jewish community standing up and taking this job is, I would say there's been a little bit of obsession in the American Jewish community, at least, or possibly the Canadian too. Uh, uh, the idea of Jewish continuity, uh, what are, what is Jewish life going to look like going forward? And the way that conversation often plays out is in how are we going to talk about women's bodies today? But this, it's pretty, there is no continuity without a continuing earth. And if we're serious about thinking about how Jews live going forward, then we need an earth to live in. And if we're serious about thinking about what God wants from us going forward, then we need to honor what God has created for us. I feel like one of the really hard parts for me about climate change is that there is a kind of thing that people get instructed to do in their own homes of like recycle, <laughs> reuse, like buy use stuff, like don't drive places. And, you know, I do that stuff, but I also feel like it's like less than spitting in the ocean. <laughs> um, it's just like, it feels like so tiny compared to what's happening. And what I keep hearing is like, you know, institutions and countries need to have policies that make big changes because, you know, while the little changes are important, they're not going to make the difference that we need. Like, even if everyone was doing it, it wouldn't add up to enough as like the kind of changes that can come from big um, institutional and governmental policy changes. I feel like I understand how like how there could be a, a big push in a community towards like recycling or composting or not driving or whatever. But like, what is the role of a Jewish community in getting like policy changed? And I'm curious about I mean, your take about that. And because Zahava is like an actual policy person, I'm curious, like how you think about that as well. Well, I'm going to go ahead and plug Dainu. Um, because this is really why Dainu exists is because it saw that um, shuls across the country have done a great job the past couple of decades with their greening communities and switching to organic and maybe installing solar panels and composting. Uh, and that's important work when it comes to inculcating a sense of, of self-discipline um, and uh, making sure that you have your values on your mind as you live through your life. Uh, because like I have to, uh, when Rambam talks about charity, he encourages giving a little bit constantly rather than giving a ton at once because it turns you into the type of person that will continue to give charity. So that's important because you need to be a person who is living through your life thinking about uh, all of these issues. However, everything you said is absolutely correct. That's not that's not going to be uh, what changes things. Uh, so what Dianu does is it has a on the one hand, it has a national top down structure um, where it works um, policy and lobbying and uh, pressuring in D.C. executive and legislative. And it does that by creating pressure among more local Dainu circles across the country and in Canada. Um, and these are Jewish communities that have decided that this is an issue that they care a lot about. 
Um, and what happens is throughout the country, they listen to what the Dayanu national team is encouraging them to do. So if there's a campaign to call your representatives in Congress about XYZ bill or issue, then you have Jewish communities across the country doing that. Um, and it also encourages the people who in their local communities to have their ear to the ground about what their own representatives are asking for, um, what, what sort of thing is going on in their towns and their states so that they can also apply pressure from that direction too. So I've been called on in my capacity as person who does policy for a day <laughs> job, um, though this is not in any way the area of policy I work on. But I think while I don't have a great answer to that question, a lot of policy change is about mobilizing committed and informed advocacy coalitions and convincing elected officials that this is something that people are really exercised about. And one of the powerful things about faith communities of all kinds is that they are pre-organized advocacy coalitions, which can be very powerful. And so drawing on faith communities in that way can really matter. And especially for an, an issue like this, an issue that is not specifically about um, something that people would tag as something relevant to religious practice in an explicit way, that sometimes interfaith coalitions can be especially powerful, which is something that I see in my um, in my core focus area of education policy, that uh, coalitions of faith groups being united on an issue that does not immediately appear to be in their wheelhouse can be very powerful. Mm. All of that said, this is one of those topics that really puts me into sort of a, a, a wordless despair sometimes. So this may be sort of <laughs> difficult, but I think that when it comes to talking about climate policy, and the climate crisis generally, there are kind of two poles. I don't mean in terms of people's political views. I mean, in terms of, you know, if you care about this issue, there's kind of two poles of how to talk about it. There's the wonky science poll and there's the layperson's, you know, emotional reaction, the, the fear, the grief. And there isn't Neither of those things is inherently mobilizing. And that's what I think from an advocacy perspective and from an organizing perspective can be really challenging because the scientific consensus has been clear for a very long time. The experts have been saying, uh, you know, varying degrees of the same thing for a long time. Um, the, the mounting despair and grief and fear uh, you know, are, are their own side of things, but not, none of that is, um, informed layperson coming in, telling their story in a compelling way and advocating for a solution that is both meaningful and a thing they understand. And that, what I just described as something that I don't really see happening here is what I would describe as the most powerful and useful form of, of mobilization and advocacy. And so that's something that really trips me up. I mean, I don't know that, that that trips me up in a uniquely Jewish way, um, but in just in terms of talking about what it means to mobilize people around this issue, I, I, it feels like things need to be happening in the great middle there. And I'm not sure how. Well, I think that's where I feel like big organ. We need organizers to to sort of at least for me, I need to sort of be spoon fed the um, policies to be advocating for, right? Because I, I, I am so much in the emotional despair realm. Um, and I can listen to all the podcasts about like cool carbon capture technology or, you know, Paris climate accords, but I don't know what to be asking my representatives for until somebody writes a nice postcard that I can <laughs> recite. Right. That that is what organized communities are for, because not everyone can be an expert on anything. So if you find that there is something that you're an expert on, then go take a leadership role there and spoon feed the knowledge. I like how you put that to others uh, with sugar or honey, because 
Otherwise, we're all going to choke on it. The world is too scary. And if you are in a place and every this is going to be everybody's place on most issues where you don't have the knowledge, then you find the people who do have the knowledge. You sort of outsource a certain level of knowledge to people that you trust. And then you work with them. And I mean, that's what I do for almost anything I care about. There are a few things that I feel confident that I know an incredible amount about. And the rest, I turn to others and uh, they help me figure out what I'm doing. Zahava, though, you're like, you're, you're right. There's this, there's a gap. It's frustrating because studies show the vast majority of Americans, at least, are very concerned about climate change. But then so what? We don't know what to do about it. And I think right now, uh, in the last several years, we're seeing a catch up. We're seeing people organizing around it more and more. Um, and it's human centered organizing is new, too. For a long time, I personally like I cared about climate change, but it wasn't a huge priority uh, because it was about polar bears and polar bears are really, really cute and scary at the same time. And they're awesome, but they weren't going to be my priority. Other human beings are going to. And that's we're catching up to that now um, and to that ground where people are learning how to tell their stories in a way that is both knowledgeable and politically urgent. Uh, we're figuring that out as we go. I feel like there's a, there's a thing that rabbis are often doing, which is like anything that goes on, they're like, what's the Jewish angle on this? So I can talk about it <laughs> on Shabbos in my, in my sermon. And I feel like what we kind of need is everyone to be thinking like, what's the climate change angle on this issue that is important to this community? Because basically like just the way, like there's something in the Torah about any issue that you care about, like there is something about climate change that affects almost every like issue that you care about as well. Um, and I think that that it's taken a while, I think for all of the connections to become more, more clear, but you know, I mean, if you are someone for whom like Israel advocacy is like hugely important to you, like climate change is a huge driver of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict because of lack of water. Like, honestly, if I, I, I would rather chew off my arm than hear a sermon about Israel. <laughs> and I've said it, I've said it before, I'll say it again. But if it was about water policy and like how this connects to that, that is like, that is interesting to me. That is not the same drash that I've heard 500 times. Um, and, you know, similarly, there's so many local issues, um, in every community that really are connected to like, how are different communities preparing for what climate change is going to be like? I think about it actually with older adults, a, a population I'm really passionate about, you know, when we have these heat waves, the majority of people who die in heat waves are older adults or often people who have to work outside in fields. Um, and we've got to start talking about like, we need to mobilize this community as well to start asking for an infrastructure and the cooling infrastructure in all spaces, because heat waves are going to keep happening and floods are going to keep happening. And that's going to affect people who don't have the means um, to move themselves as quickly and easily. Exactly. Yeah. I think about how that, how climate change could be a way into a lot of things or how whatever the thing is can be a way into climate change, I guess. And I would love to see that be something that like Jewish communities start to mobilize around. This is a bit different. This is taking the conversation in a different direction than what can we do? So um, this may be sort of a disempowering direction to take things and I apologize, but I'm wondering if we can talk for a minute about the climate crisis and faith. So there was a set of survey statistics circulating a few weeks back 
about um, major generational divides in belief in God. Um, I don't even recall who had done the survey, so I certainly can't vouch for its methods. I don't know that it's true, but the apparent divergence where there was sort of a steady decline from, you know, boomers to Gen X to millennials and then a absolute nosedive uh, for Generation Z. And I was sharing this with a couple of friends and we were talking about what what could be behind a sort of su sudden divergence um, rather than a, a steady change, but a, a sudden skip in the, the level of faith in God. And I said, well, to me, one obvious answer is climate change. And the friend I was talking to was like, what on earth do you mean? This did not immediately resonate with her. Um, and I said something along the lines of growing up in a place where it appears that God is allowing the world to become less and less inhabitable without some kind of miraculous salvation in play and without a great prospect for improvement feels like a betrayal of the biblical narrative, feels like a betrayal of the notion of, of an actively involved God in, in the lives of humans and a betrayal of the narrative that starts with God putting humans on earth um, in, in a particular role and in a particular capacity. And this is something that I think I don't feel quite as acutely because, not because of the not feeling the issue as acutely, but because I feel like I, I approach this as, you know, an adult with a fairly decent faith foundation uh, before this crisis really became truly existential as we were all experiencing it. But in terms of, of young people trying to formulate a faith identity in this context, I have to imagine that that's a huge, huge factor. That really resonates with me. I mean, I guess I hadn't thought about how this might impact people's belief in God, but I had actually thought about how this impacts my desire to have lots of kids. Like, why would I want, I, I do want to have lots of kids, but I can understand a fear. Why would I bring lots of kids into this world that is burning? Um, and I, for me, like that comes down to a belief in a benevolent God that, or, or a hope, or I don't know, it's, it's a very religiously connected idea for me, the idea of having children and that that is sort of my act of faith in humanity and in our relationship with God and the world. And it's very scary to me. And it goes back, I think, to Tisha B'Av, where we, we read the story of, I mean, not just not having children, it's the words there is that the mothers are, are eating their children. They're starving and they eat their own children. Um, and we still exist somehow. And you go from that to Isaiah saying there's comfort here and we don't, we don't know how we're going to get from the first part to the second part, but there is a sort of act of radical faith of continuing on my partner, Elise, says that one thing that gives her hope is looking to the world in geologic time, uh, where if you zoom in, we've suffered all of these mass extinctions on this earth, like so many horrifying tragedies that are beyond really how I understand, because I, I, mean, I go back to human history. But if you just look at earth history, it's catastrophe after catastrophe. And then somehow there's life and we're here. And that is like taking that super, super long view, which I hope doesn't lead to passivity because it's still, I mean, we only get to Isaiah because there's this idea that, that is, as people were going to do better somehow, but even thinking of that is an act of, of faith. I don't know what basis there is to it, but it it's there. And 
thinking about the, the broken promises with God. I wish I remember who taught me this. If anyone, I don't know if anyone listening to this podcast knows this, please reach out to them. And then someone reach back out to me. How when, when God promises not to destroy the earth by flood to Noah, that is not actually a guarantee that the earth won't be destroyed by flood. It just means that if the earth is destroyed by flood, it won't be God who did it. That will be on us. So it is this balancing of, on the one hand, this need of this, this radical faith of something good going to come from, from the lack of future for, for our children to, to like some vision of this new age um, between that and the day-to-day intense responsibility that we could flood the earth. That would be us, not, not God. Oh, I do not know how to wrap up this segment in a way <laughs> that will uh, really seem light. Um, but I do want to say that I I really love um, how you open the segment, Mimi, and this idea that like we actually have a lot of precedent in Judaism and like moving through grief as a community and like figuring out how to... Um, how to get to whatever the next place is. Um, but still while really holding on to the reality that, that the grief is real and that it's, you know, continues to impact us long after the loss happens. And that does, I hadn't thought about it until you framed it that way, but it does feel like a really useful tool for this specific moment in history. Amelia, thank you so much for joining us. Next time we'll have you on for a much happier conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. Visit dayenu.org or check out your Jewish Climate Action Network. Um, There's a lot to be done. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you so much. Sahava, I'm sorry if I sort of took a right turn from your conversation about faith in God. No, I think it was an interesting direction to take it. I I think that... (sighs) A lot of this depends on how active you think God is in the world. Um, right. Like Amelia saying that if the world floods again and is destroyed, that isn't an act of God, isn't inherently like, that is just like not a thing that that fits within Orthodox theology, I think. The notion that the world could be destroyed and that that wouldn't be an act of God in some fashion um, just doesn't compute for me. So Mm -hmm. like there's lots of different notions of what God is and how God does or doesn't operate in the world. Um, So I don't want to, I don't want to limit that conversation to what I was saying, but like, I I think that, that there's, I think that there's more there, but, but it's, there's only sort of so far down into the depths we can go. Yeah. But I definitely think there's more there. Yeah. I think your spot, I I love jumping to climate change as like a reasonable response to why faith in God has dropped so precipitously. Actually, the, the flood thing in and of itself is interesting because I've actually been thinking about the the way the Psukim describe the the like sort of precipitating conditions among humanity. And there's a lot of like commentary on what exactly it was that people were doing wrong. But what the Pasuk says is that the, the like, right. I think is the language, right. And the, like the world was filled with corruption and like the notion that you have literally corrupted the physical earth um, as the precipitating event of, of destruction feels directly relevant to me. Yeah. Yeah. It also connects to me to the way in Yona, it talks about the commentaries about like the people of Nineveh and how like bad they were. I remember learning that there's like a Midrash that they were so bad that like when they repented, they had to go and they like tore down buildings to get like the two bricks that they had stolen to return them to the person that they'd stolen to Mm. like, and the idea being basically like the foundation of everything was totally stolen and bad. And that, that is like how it feels about climate change is it's like at the root of so many things. Who's ready for a sharp turn in a very different direction although 
may be leading to similar levels of despair. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Oh my gosh. We are here, like everyone else, to talk about My Unorthodox Life, a new show on Netflix about a woman named Julia Hart, who grew up, as she puts it, ultra-Orthodox. She lived in Muncie. Hamisha Yeshivish, as she would say. And then the Chiron on the Netflix screen uses that as though Yeshiva Shahamisha is the name of a town where she grew up. I know. I was like, that's not even a thing, but okay. Um, (laughs) She, at the age of 42, she left her community. She had four children at that time. She like left the community, ended up becoming the CEO or director of a modeling company and is launching a fashion line, obviously. And uh, My Unorthodox Life follows her and her four children, primarily the three oldest. There's Shlomo, who's in his 30s and during the course of the show has his first kiss. There's Batsheva, who is in her early 20s. She got married when she was 19 to her husband, Benjamin. And um, together, the two of them have kind of moved somewhat away from orthodoxy together. And although not always so much together. And then Miriam is the younger daughter who is, was kind of, it sounds like was one of the reasons that Julia Hart decided to leave the community was because her daughter was having a really, really hard time in the community. Miriam is a very enthusiastic bisexual woman. And then her youngest son, Aaron, is 14 um, and seems to live mostly still with his father in Muncie. Oh my gosh. I have so many thoughts about this show. <laughs> but Zahava, you uh, watched it before I did and were sending us like a text commentary as you watch. So I'm super curious just to hear your uh, your gut here. Oh my goodness. First of all, a couple of disclaimers. One, I only forced myself to sit through three episodes. I don't know how far each of you got. Also three. Um, that's as much as I could take. <laughs> I think I finished four. Okay. Number two, this is in a genre of reality show that irrespective of the Jewish angle, I don't enjoy. So like, I've never watched Keeping Up with the Kardashians unless it was unavoidably on at the gym during the brief period in my life when I went to the gym. (laughs) And this is very clearly attempting to exist in that vein. This is the formerly Orthodox Kardashians. (laughs) That's funny. I was thinking of it as more of a like real housewives of, I guess, Muncie thing. But I think you're right. It is a Kardashian ripoff. I want to sort of acknowledge that this is not something that I would enjoy, even if it wasn't actively irritating me in many (laughs) specific ways. Third disclaimer, like 80% of my extended family lives in Muncie. Right. So I just feel like it's important to say that before I say her description of her prior life is complete crap. This is incredibly false. I mean, the first episode is by far the worst of the three I watched because it's all the establishing stuff. And it strikes me as incredibly disingenuous. Right. Um, And so there's a lot going on where and I think some of this is Netflix's fault and not hers. The naming of the executive producer, though, so. I think we can. Okay, fair enough. I should say this is production choices rather than uh, all things that you get through what is being said in the show without attributing responsibility per se. So that's a good point. Just even calling the show My Unorthodox Life is clearly meant to directly evoke the previous Netflix show Unorthodox, which is loosely based on Deborah Feldman's memoir about leaving a much, much different community. Right. Yeah. Um, A much more insular Hasidic community that really is not at all like the Muncie community that she came from. And I just want to say, like, it's not that there aren't bad experiences to be had in right wing orthodoxy of various stripes. The problem about this isn't that it's criticizing orthodoxy. I'm not taking umbrage on behalf of my denomination. It's that the experiences being critiqued at the very least by implication are not her experiences. And it is collapsing the range of orthodox communal practice into one thing that can easily be dismissed as backward and cruel instead of seeing it as a multifaceted thing that is the actual lived experience of human beings. 
the the first 15 minutes of establishing stuff, she refers to herself as having an, had an arranged marriage, which is a radical overstatement for what is almost certainly a situation that amounts to I met my husband on a blind date and we didn't and we didn't date for very long. That is not what most people are thinking of when they hear the phrase arranged marriage. When you see the like a picture of her daughter shortly after her wedding, it's a picture of a smiling young woman and across it is scrolled first wig. <laughs> it's like, how alien can we make this seem to everybody on purpose? And then she says women in our community. And then it pans to a shot of women in Borough Park, like Hasidish women in Borough Park. Like that is in fact, not her community. At least the B-roll in the beginning of episode three is actually if Muncie. It just feels bizarre and constructed in a way that is meant to evoke a different mental image in the minds of the audience. And because the show, at least through the three episodes that I saw, does an incredibly limited job of actually depicting directly at all anything about the community she actually comes from, all they're trying to do is gesture in the directions of the mental model you have when somebody says fundamentalist. Mm -hmm. And you can just make those assumptions about what she came from and move on. Like the show is incredibly incurious about the life she left behind. I actually found the most compelling character to be Yosef, her ex-husband. The one person who is still in the community fully, you know, you could say Aaron is too, and yet seems compassionate towards his children's choices open and available to them, willing to have his ex-wife who walked out on him with four kids, you know, in his life, agreeing to the filming in the first place. Like, let's talk more to Yosef. I know. I was like, there's no way we're going to see this guy. And then when he came on screen, I was like, wow. Wow. I have <laughs> so many questions about everyone's motivations here, but that Me. one was a shock. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it was really bizarre. I also, this is Zahava not commenting at all on the quality of the analysis you just gave. I just have to say, it's really rich for her to make fun of wigs and shaitals when she is clearly wearing some sort of hair piece. There's <laughs> no way in this, in this show that that's all her hair. <laughs> She's wearing something. And in episode three, you actually see... A uh, picture from her daughter's wedding when she is still wearing uh, a more traditional wig. And it is the exact same yeah. style as the hair yeah, she yeah, has now. Yeah. Like her hair right now is very, very wiggy. I just have to say, like, the only interest this show has in orthodoxy is voyeuristic interest. Yeah, right. There's no interest in the substance. What you get from this show is that orthodoxy exists only to oppress women and force you to wear weir weird clothing. Like the number of comments about the youngest son's black hat. Or the way the like description on the screen describes CC as ritual tassels with no context. There's a lot of like dropping ritual weirdness with no context in a way that is like just othering and not at all interested. I think it also portrays orthodoxy as making her sons awkward. It like it, it like orthodoxy <laughs> is the thing that like oppresses her daughters are pretty oppresses awkward. her daughters in their clothing choices and their sexuality and makes her sons really awkward like no well it's it's also so ironic because like her sons actually seem to have relatively healthy ideas about sexuality and her daughters have become entirely about clothes and sex and it's like Wait, <laughs> was this what you were going for? Like, this is, I thought that the weirdest thing about this show, and this is like interesting to have it because it's almost like the, the mirror image of what you thought is that like, she, Julia Hart comes across as like, basically a monster and her being like, I left this life because it wasn't good. And now I'm modern. She is like, the, the opening, like the cold open of the show is her like talking about sex with her daughter and son-in-law in a wildly inappropriate way, like nothing to do with orthodoxy. It's just not how you talk to your own child about sex and certainly not to your child and son-in-law. Like it's extremely inappropriate. And so honestly, like, and she does this over and over in the show where she just has like really very bad boundaries with her children 
And like, honestly, it, she comes across as like kind of a unstable person who, and like her ex-husband seems like a supportive guy of even, even amidst all of this chaos. And like, yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree that I think her ex-husband and her son, Aaron are by far the most interesting characters on the show because they seem to be actually grappling in a genuine way with like wanting to like embrace their Jewish life and also deal with a family member who is extremely disruptive to them and like makes bad, bad judgment calls all the time in public. And like, honestly, that's very relatable. <laughs> like, you know, with outside of a religious context, like who hasn't had someone in their family who just seems to be constantly trying to like tap dance and get everybody to react. And it's like disruptive. It makes you feel awkward and bad. And like, that is effectively what she does throughout. I think like, but then, so that was my reaction. Like I was like, this show makes me want to move to Muncie. Like what's going on? Like the Muncie people are the good ones. But I also have never seen Keeping Up with the Kardashians. So I don't really have a frame of reference for that. But like, it's the least convincing reality reality show I've ever seen. Like there's multiple scenes where it's like a couple will be like talking in bed and it's like, well, there's cameras there. Like we know that you like put on clothes and makeup and then like got in bed and the camera guys came and like, it just doesn't feel even remotely real. There are a lot of sort of forced one-on-ones, you know, in the middle of a party, Batsheva, you know, pulls her sister Miriam aside to talk about, you know, inappropriate public displays of affection. Like, right. No, the, the producers said, why don't you do this now? Well, there are a couple of moments where like something kind of unexpected happens or somebody has like what seems to be a very genuine reaction. And those are fascinating, but they have nothing to do with religion. So what I'm thinking of is in the episode that I just watched her assistant, Robert, she really wants him to start dating and he doesn't want to. And she hires a matchmaker to come to her house. And then she has Robert come over and just like springs this matchmaker on him. And he's like, no, I don't want this. And when he figures out what's hap- what has happening, he kind of shuts down. Like he's just like, no, no, I don't want this. This isn't how I want to do this. And he leaves. And like, I do not think that was scripted. Like, I think he was, I mean, then more things happen, which I do think were scripted, but like that or somewhat whatever <laughs> orchestrated, but like that moment of him being just like, what on earth do you think you're doing? First of all, I was like, he works for you and you're trying to and you're hiring someone to get him a date. Like, please explain to me how this isn't just like straight up a sexual harassment liability. This is my one personal connection to reality TV. Uh, somebody I went to summer camp with is in a reality TV show with Scott Disick from Keeping Up with the Kardashian mm-hmm. World. And they call her like an assistant or some, they call her like his assistant, but that's clearly not, it's not as if she was his assistant before all of this, she was cast. And so I really wondered whether Robert is not actually a COO of a huge international modeling agency. If actually they were like, we need a funny gay character in here. There's why would your COO go with you to, Muncie to pick up your right. son and go through the grocery store with you. Just like, yeah, it doesn't really, that's it, not real. It doesn't make any sense. He's not her real employee. Well, it's still inappropriate and wrong. And it really upset me. <laughs> One thing that I actually liked about the show and felt really appreciative about, although I don't, I don't think they did it well, but just the fact that they actually show that the people in this family are in different places in how they think about their religious life and they are continuously navigating it to me felt like really true and it was very bizarre because it's like against this backdrop of like utter fakery and grossness but like Binyamin and Batsheva 
in the beginning, like she's is talking to him about wearing how she wants to start wearing pants. And it's kind of weird because she's been wearing clothing that like I think of as like not at all Tanias, but apparently it did not include pants up until this point. And pants is like the real dividing line for Binyamin. And he is like kind of against it. And he's like, I want to talk to my family. I just don't feel good about it. And, you know, she's like, I don't want you to control what I wear. And he's like, I don't want to control what you wear. I just, I feel weird about this. And it's like, that feels very real to me as a conversation that like people have as they're negotiating religious life is like one person is like, I want to do this. And the other person is like, I don't feel great about that. And the first person is like, why not? It's my life. And it's like, right. Like that's how relationships work. And religion works is like, you're not going to have like an airtight answer. Like it's religion. It's literally faith. (laughs) Like at a certain point, you just have to be like, I believe this or I don't, this is important to me or it's not. But like seeing people actually actively negotiate that and struggle with it, even though like it kind of gets resolved in like a dumb way in the show. But just the fact that they showed it at all, I thought was super interesting. And that like Shlomo is the oldest brother and he seems to be like the least of a character in the show. But he also seems to be like still relatively invested in the Orthodox community. That's just like a very interesting, like, what is it like to be like a relatively from guy whose mom is not at all from? And like, what is, what is that experience like? Like, that is really interesting. I think that there's, we've heard the story of somebody going from very Orthodox, whatever that means. Obviously it means different things for Deborah Feldman and Julia Harp, but like, I don't think that the average person actually understands that those two things were very different to not religious at all. But like, there is a lot between that. And I think it's kind of weird that the expectation is you will go from a hundred to zero and not like consider anything in between. And I really liked that the show really grappled with like, I mean, I don't think it grappled well, but it actually showed people trying to figure out like, well, this thing that was like very fundamental to my, no pun intended, to my life until very recently, like how, where does it fit in my life now? To me, that's what made Julia the least interesting character on the show. You didn't experience any of her actual process because her religious transformation is complete by the time the show arrives. But also she feels like she is still stuck in reaction to her prior life. Like she has not done a good job of processing and coming out as somebody who is whole in her new identity. And that every time we see her react to any aspect of her children's religious consideration, it is with an extreme rejection that they might still consider anything religious to be of value in a way that just strikes me as bad parenting. hundred percent. Um, and I think that the most painful scene to watch in, in the three episodes that I watched is the first time we really, we meet our own, who's her youngest son, the 14 year old who still, uh, lives within the Orthodox community. And he himself is, is still religious. I say still as though I'm expecting him <laughs> to st- stop being religious any second now, which is actually not true. And I found him quite impressive, not specifically for his religious commitment, but just for his sort of strength of character under the incredibly immature assault um, from his mother's sort of reactionary experience that he comes back from summer camp. And it has been an experience that has reinforced the cultural norms that he has been living in in Muncie. And he comes back and he says, I'm I'm not going to be friends with girls anymore, which incidentally to me felt like the first genuine depiction of actual Muncie strictures and not imaginary ones was the moment in which he was describing that he wanted to go back to only being friends with uh, with fellow boys and not having a girlfriend and not watching TV. Those feel genuine to me. And she like hectors him says, I will not let fundamentalism ruin your life and then starts crying at him. There's a tremendous amount of projection and baggage here in her parenting in a way that feels like a form of violence to her children's own religious journey. 
and that just she is not mature enough to effectively parent people grappling with this issue. And they have been forced to grapple with religiosity and their mom at the same time because she's not really equipped to do either. Yeah. I mean, it's funny because it's like she left when she was 42, which she talks about constantly, but she does basically act like a teenager or somebody in their early 20s who's just started having sex and like thinks that they have basically invented sex and wants to talk about it like all the time. And it's like that really is not abnormal in your early 20s but it's really freaking weird for someone who's 50 to be behaving the way she is and she really cloaks it in this like liberation thing where it's like lady you don't seem liberated at all you seem like exactly what Muncie is like built (laughs) like you're just proving the point of everybody back in Muncie right now and that's is like I mean whatever maybe you don't care but it's like so awkward I also thought this is like both minor and major to me I don't understand so one of in the one of the episodes that I watched she it is revealed that she has written a book and um, she ultimately gives a manuscript to her children to read. And her daughter, Bacheva, and son-in-law, Binyamin, come across a place where she talks about how after they got married, they came to her because they had basically unsuccessfully had sex and they needed someone to like explain to them more about the mechanics. And they are rightfully like really embarrassed and unhappy about this being in the book and ask her to not have it be in the book, which she agrees to, but it's in the show. show. (laughs) So I was like, what? (laughs) Like if you didn't want people to know this, like a lot more people are going to watch a show on Netflix than we're ever going to read your mom's, (laughs) your mom's book. Like I, I was just like, I am confused about this. Like genuinely it was a bad idea for her to have written this. And I, they did seem genuinely like grossed out and upset about it. But the fact that they then allowed it to be taped and get in the show, I was like, this makes me question everyone's motivation. Like it, she, I agree. She's the least interesting and she makes the worst choices. But like when that was in the show, I was like, Bacheva, like, why is this here? Like, could you not put your foot? I mean, she maybe wasn't allowed to, but like, it's puzzling and just sad that like these kids who actually like seem to be in some ways, like thoughtful, kind people who are trying to figure out what is honestly a, absolutely bizarre situation that they're in but then sometimes they make choices and you're just like all right you know what (laughs) maybe you are i mean i i think in this in this instance and and there are a few other instances too it's helpful to think of reality tv as essentially a giant commercial and we don't quite know yet what it's a commercial for I mean, clearly the show is a commercial for her biography or her memoir, whatever, and for the modeling group. Yeah, her like fashion and her line. fashion line. Which, by the way, so ugly. <laughs> I wonder if it's also a commercial for Binyamin's real estate business. You know, it's certainly Miriam, like her whole professional identity is tied up with riding the coattails of her mom's success and notoriety. So I think it's helpful to remember that everybody has something to gain by being on this show. We just don't quite know what it is yet. The the only people who I don't understand being on the show, I don't understand Shlomo. I don't understand Aaron and I don't understand Yosef agreeing to it at all. But there are press releases with Yosef and his current wife and the whole family at the premiere of the Netflix show. So there's 
some level of agreement. And and I think the agreement is also about a benefit that they're all getting. Yeah. I mean, I guess they all stand to get money off of a successful Netflix show, but it is pretty gross. Just to, to pick up on the memoir conversation um, from episode three about this book that she's written and what she's revealing in it and the tension that that's creating with her family. I think that that's actually the best distillation I've seen of of a fundamental divide between a secular modern ethic and the religious ethic that she's coming from. It does a really good job of explaining it in a way that the show isn't explicit about, but I think is really useful, which is the difference between you got to live your truth. You got to you do you. You have to be who you are. You can't self-censor. And the notion of striving for a life that aligns with a specific notion of higher truth or a particular idea of self-improvement, you know, in a specific image, that is perhaps the the most fundamental divide between the life she left and the life she's living now. I, I think Miriam, who's uh, her younger daughter, maybe embodies this like swallowing wholesale the notion that the most important value is living your truth. And this, I think, is a real tension between modern life and religious notions of morality. Like, I think this is, this is a a real thing. And throughout the show, I have to be honest in the memoir or, you know, the way the, the fashion world is presented and how it's all about you being you and you being written with any censoring of what kind of thing that you wear and the image you project to the world, or, you know, you have to, you have to live your truth. So when the younger daughter wants to change her last name from her original last name, Hendler, to her mother's chosen last name, Hart, that's I couldn't possibly think about any ramifications beyond living my truth in this way. On the other side, talking about, well, religiosity wants you to live in a cookie cutter way. Like there's obviously a ton of middle ground that is left unexplored there. But the notion that Becoming a better version of oneself involves striving to align with a specific notion of the good is real. And I wish the the show obviously is not going to like put a disquisition about this in text on the screen. But to me, that's what that whole memoir conversation was really about. I think that there's a, a, a third element, which is the preservation of relationships, which you can't say the modern world doesn't you know, value. I mean, I I just think that she is so selfish that she can't even imagine why the decision between Binyamin and Batsheva about, you know, what they do religiously is none of her freaking business, you know, or that, I don't know, she, she just, to me, the preservation of relationships has nothing to do with religious versus modern but it's totally missing from Julia Hart's life. Yes. Also, just like as a writer, the idea that you would write an entire book about your family and then be like, well, like the the whole way that she approaches the fact that she's written this book, which is apparently going to come out. And she was like, maybe or maybe not going to show her kids. And it's like all about them and their private lives. And also the piece, the like manuscript that she shows them, she says like, it hasn't been edited at all. I was like, lady, (laughs) I cannot handle you. (laughs) As a writer, I'm in pain right now. So this show was so interesting to me, even though I like did not like it. I think the things that it does poorly are like really interesting things. And it does point at things that you rarely see on shows. It's just that you have to basically hold your nose and close your eyes every time Julia Hart is on because she's so terrible. I want to shout out two articles that I read in response to the show, both of which I thought were good and interesting. And so I don't know if either of you read um, the piece in Glamour by Jenny Singer called My Unorthodox Life is Compelling TV That Could Make Life Harder for Some Jews. Mm -hmm. But that particular piece was about the way in which painting all right-wing Orthodox Jews with the same brush and specifically characterizing this community, which in the last couple of years has been the target of 
a number of deadly anti-Semitic attacks is both immoral and irresponsible. It was a good piece, even though, as Jenny Singer says, she found the show really compelling TV and enjoys this genre. But that was um, useful to me. The other piece in JTA um, by Danny Bernstein called My Ex-Orthodox Life Isn't Glamorous, But My Story Should Be Told, in which she basically talks about what is required in terms of support and resources and just what a transition involves to leave a right-wing Orthodox life and how since doing so herself, she has mentored a number of people leaving right-wing orthodoxy and that Julia Hart's version of this is itself harmful and irresponsible to the other people for whom she is modeling this journey. She references a scene that I did not get to from later in the show where Julia Hart's way of talking to a 19-year-old who wants to leave the community is like, let me give you a makeover and a vibrator and tell you to move right out of your parents' house with no, uh, with no support. And just a, a much more interesting sort of personal lens on this kind of journey. So we'll share links to both of those in show notes, but I thought they were both useful. That's awesome. I have not read either of those, but I totally want to. All right. Well, it sounds like we're, we're already gesturing in that direction. So let's go to endorsements. Mimi, what do you have to endorse? I want to share an author who I'm really into right now. Um, her name is Laura Lipman, Two P's, Two N's. She writes... I'm only in my second book by her, but I'm really into her. She writes like just thrillers with interesting female characters um, and I am loving, I just finished Sunburn. It's to me, it's like amazing summer read when the AC is not working and you just need to be at a beach or a pond or anywhere, um, distracting yourself. Try something by Laura Lipman. I have recommended one of the books in the past. Oh, totally great. agree. Um, Zahava, what about you? So after our discussions today, I want to recommend something that does not make me either sad or angry. Um, so something light and fun. And that is uh, the YouTube channel for the funk band Scary Pockets. Um, and this is so surprising. No <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, okay, so here's the thing. So Scary Pockets is founded by Jack Conti, who's a YouTube uh a, a, a musician whose fame is mostly YouTube based. He um, and his wife, Natalie Don, are also the two halves of the um, band Pomplamoose. He's a keyboardist. And also he, if you like live on the Internet, you may know him also as the co-founder of Patreon, um, <laughs> which is a platform that enables online creators to um, sort of get paid by for their work um, by subscribers who want to support it. Anyway, Scary Pockets is a funk band that does covers of non-funk songs in funk style. Um, this has no obvious Jewish connection. So I'll just call out a couple of covers of songs that are originally by Jewish artists um, that I think are good and interesting because they do covers of a broad range of things. And some of them are already up-tempo and sort of funk adjacent, and those are fun but not as interesting. But they do a really good funk cover of the Simon and Garfunkel song Bridge Over Troubled Water, mm. um, which just conceptually is kind of mind-blowing. Really good. Um, also, I know you've heard 9,000 covers of Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah. This is a very different cover <laughs> and <laughs> worth a listen. Um, another thing that's cool about the Scary Pockets cover videos is that they don't have an in-band vocalist, as far as I can tell. And so every song is featuring one or two other vocalists that are themselves usually artists that I, I've only seen on YouTube or sometimes haven't seen at all before. So like the, the Bridge Over Troubled Water cover features um, India Carney, who herself has an amazing YouTube channel. She was also a contestant on The Voice a whole bunch of years ago and is fantastic and an artist that I've never heard of in any other context who's amazing named Kenton Chen. And they're just really fun 
And really nothing could be farther from the way the other topics <laughs> today <laughs> made me feel. So I wanted to shout out the, the joy that is Scary Pockets and their funk covers of popular songs. Oh, I cannot wait to listen to that. I just want to build on what Zahava was saying at the last at the end of our last segment about like what it actually takes to leave, especially the Hasidic world. There is, I think it's still on Netflix, a really good documentary about some people who are on that journey. It's called One of Us. And I think it's pretty plain about how hard it is. If you want to like get a more real look at what that might look like and what the challenges are for people in that who do not end up like gazillionaires. Um, I recommend that documentary, but the actual thing that I want to recommend has to do with our first segment today. Um, it's a poem that I read for the first time today and it's called hope is not a bird. Emily, it's a sewer rat by Caitlin Seda. And I will read it to you. Hope is not the thing with feathers that comes home to roost when you need it most. Hope is an ugly thing with teeth and claws and patchy fur that's seen some shit. It's what thrives in the discards and survives in the ugliest parts of our world, able to find a way to go on when nothing else can even find a way in. It's the gritty, nasty little carrier of such diseases as optimism, persistence, perseverance, and joy transmissible as it drags its tail across your path and bites you in the ass. Hope is not some delicate, beautiful bird, Emily. It is a lowly little sewer rat that snorts pesticides like they were lines of coke and still shows up on time to work the next day, looking no worse for wear. Mm. Um, Who's that by? It's by a poet named Caitlin Seda, S-E-I-D-A. And I will put a link to the poem in our show notes today. I found that poem maybe not ironically um, hopeful and uh, a nice different way to think about the kind of search for hope in in a dark time. All right. Well, thank you so much for listening. And thanks to Daniel Zana for editing our show. If you have a minute, please leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think of the show or maybe what you would like us to discuss on a future episode. You can leave a comment um, on a post on our Facebook page, search for Jewish Public Media or on our website, jpmedia.co. Just choose Talking and Shul from the list of podcasts. You can also donate to Jewish Public Media, which is a great way to support our show and make sure that we can bring you new episodes every month. Sahaba, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mimi. This was great. Thank you. See you next month.